Hey everyone, welcome back to Rewildology. Have you ever wondered how a species gains protection in Congress or any of the other legal mumbo jumbo that happens to protect wildlife? Well, I've asked these questions several times and so I connected with my good friend Haley Hawkins to learn more. Haley works for the Endangered Species Coalition and works with the public and political leaders to put conservation into legal action. We dive deep into the process of listing a species and discuss next steps for reintroducing wolves in Colorado. She also opens up about her battle with mental health struggles and shares her current coping strategies. This was recorded in December of 2020, and so a few things have slightly changed since then, but overall, the concepts are still very valid. Little side note here. Since this is more of a political episode, I want everyone to keep an open mind. If a viewpoint is stated that doesn't exactly align with your beliefs, then it is totally cool. This show is made for chatting about different ideas and sometimes controversial topics. It's fun. We need more open, safe places to chat about these things, and that's what Rewildology is all about. We drank lots of wine and had a blast recording this one for you all. Let me know what you think of this episode by reaching out at rewildology.com. And don't forget to subscribe and review on your favorite streaming app. And now, on to the show. Well, thanks, Haley. So excited you're with me today. This is so fun. We got our wine. Just hanging out here, doing happy hour. Um, so to start, to really let the listeners know who you are, where did you come from? What was your childhood like? Ooh, um, great question. And I, you know, before I start to tell you that, I wanted to to just say, you know, I'm I'm just like Brooke. I live in Colorado, and um, coming to you from land that was traditionally owned by um, the Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Ute nations, and wanted to definitely recognize that that land still um, tra traditionally belongs to them, and and we're sitting on stolen land right now. Um, so where did I come from? I came from Mississippi, which was, um, traditional Navajo and, and some other nations that I'm not remembering in Paris, um, <laughs> <Okay>. land. <laughs> mm. And my childhood, um, I don't know. I think a lot of middle age white girls <laughs> will really relate to my story. It's pretty basic. I, um, I played outside a ton. I was kind of a tomboy. Um, I had a ton of stuffed animals and they each had like names. And I actually, I think I've just always been like really empathetic. I would feel super guilty if I like hung out with one more than the other, or like if I decided I didn't like one as much, God, like that just like broke my heart. Um, so that's weird. I also played outside with my friends all of the time. And um, even though we were kind of in a downtown, like neighborhood a grid system but I, I had girlfriends from all over the neighborhood and we had bikes and we would just like ride around like like a little I mean, definitely not a gang but like just like little white <laughs> girls like riding their bikes or rollerblades and um we also had I distinctly remember a, my childhood was these azalea bushes in our backyard and they were I don't know seven feet tall or something and they were really old and um, they were mature enough where you could, me, you know, as a small child, I could, you know, crawl inside of them. And I, I would go in there enough where the the floor inside the bush was kind of, you know, everything had kind of died. And it was just like a hard dirt bottom. And 
one bush was like my kitchen and one bush was like my bedroom. And um, in spring, the blossoms would bloom like white and pink and purple. And there was this one that was my favorite that was kind of like this coral pink color. Like I can't even, I don't even know what the name of it is, but it's like a, like a fuchsia, a fuchsia and coral, you know, like hooked up. It's like, it was just amazing. And, um, uh, so those azalea bushes, I mean, they like were the background of my childhood. And I also remember there was also like pecan trees in our yard. And so, I mean, we just have ton, a ton of leaves and pecans, which just fall on the ground and people walking down our road would, you know, just stop and pick pecans because there were so many of them. And in the fall, when we would rake the leaves, there'd be giant piles of leaves. And I would like literally lay in the piles with a nutcracker in one hand. And I would just like kind of dig around and find a pecan and like crack it and then just, you know, eat it right there like a little squirrel. And I don't know if y'all have ever had like raw pecans, but they kind of have this like really creamy, earthy taste and they leave a film in your mouth. And I don't know. It's just at the time it was awesome. Although every once in a while you get kind of like a bad one and that one is like bitter and astringent and like not good. But I just, I don't know. I think when I think of childhood, that's, that's what I think of, of those azalea bushes and the trees. And um, I'm also from a port city in uh, Northeastern Mississippi. You can actually get to the Gulf of Mexico through like a series of channels and dams, which is on my bucket list to do, like go from my hometown to the Gulf of Mexico on a boat. Um, but so I, I spent, you know, my childhood driving boats when I was 11 and 12 with mostly adult supervision and um, just playing in the water. It's really, the water is like really silty. You, you know, you can't see your hand a foot underneath the surface. It's like that very like Southern, you know, silty water and, um, yeah, that was my that was my childhood growing up. It sounds very nice. It sounds yeah, like you had was, a lot. You, it was pretty so cool. Sounds like you were outdoors pretty much all the time. Like yeah. that was your playground was the outdoors. Yeah. Yes, I think so, so. Would you say that that kind of was the groundwork for where you took your life? Hmm. So kind of next, because you went into wildlife and your studies. Mm-hmm. So if you wouldn't mind sharing what you did go to school for. And what, what was the reason why you studied what you did? Yeah, I, this is one of those hard questions for me. I think I kind of envy the people that are like, I have this amazing grand story of, you know, seeing a wildlife and, you know, going into it. And I feel like my story is kind of just like, you know, little Haley got all her stuffed animals. Um, I mean, I did hang out outside a lot and luckily I had parents, um, that really fostered my interests. Um, I remember, you know, my, my dad would talk to me about the environment a lot and I would ask him about animals and I had, I had a bunch of animal books and, um, but I have this one memory of when I was, I don't know, seven or eight or nine, I was driving in the car with my dad and, you know, it's like, you're kind of just becoming aware of your surroundings and you're kind of just questioning things of, and we were right next to like a truck, maybe it was like a dump truck or something. And um, out of the exhaust pipe, you know, by the cab, you know, all this black smoke was coming out. And I remember just being like, you know, what is that? What is that black smoke? And my dad was like, yo, that's pollution. That's not good. You know, it's actually hurting the earth. And we're feeling like anger and confusion and being like, why would we do that? 
you know, I mean, that innocence of a child of just being like, that's a stupid idea, right? And it is, but there's a lot of other things that are tangled up in that and why our society operates on fossil fuels. But I want to say like that, I feel like I remember that being kind of a pivotal moment of just realizing that like we do things that are bad for the environment and it's almost like not enough people question why or don't feel empowered to do something about it. And I mean, at that age, I certainly didn't know that I had any agency, that I could do anything about that, but it kind of got my wheels turning. And so um, growing up, you know, I mean, small town Mississippi, there weren't like a ton of opportunities to do stuff like that. Like I, I, you know, I think I did our first Earth Day at my high school and um, that maybe that was like my first taste of organ, uh, nonprofit organizing um, of community mobilization. And I still didn't even know what it was at the time, but um, in undergrad, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I, but I knew I was really good at talking, you know, I, in public speaking. So I just went into communications like a lot of other white women. Um, and I found environmental science, like in my last two years of undergrad, decided to minor in it out of, um, that was like really serendipitous. Um, and then I also had one of my, one of my best friends in undergrad got me into um, doing some renewable energy organizing. Um, and so came up against a lot of different hurdles and um, with the help of, you know, a tight knit group of friends and, and a community that was really open to receiving and accepting others um, as we were, you know, like building this movement for renewable energy. Um, yeah, I just started getting this, this experience and getting a taste for um, civic engagement. And, but, you know, I, I did eventually get burnt out, um, like so many people do. And I, I don't know, I was working 30 to 40 hours a week and was a full-time student and, you know, was also like coping emotionally with being a young person in a culture that is inherently fairly unrealistic and unhealthy. And so I was binge drinking. I was, you know, dabbling in drug use. I um, at first wasn't doing very good with my grades and then, you know, was lucky enough not, not everybody are privileged enough to like find something I was really passionate about, like the environment that kind of helped me like snap out of it and realize we, like, I have something I really care about that what I want to work toward. Um, but granted, I mean, emotionally, it was still really challenging. Um, so I got burned out and I quit organizing. I quit working on environmental stuff after graduation for a couple years, although I was still kind of looking for jobs. Um, it's interesting. Uh, one thing that they don't tell you about with a communication degree is that you're really good at being like a hostess slash receptionist slash scheduling coordinator. And so in Mississippi, I kind of got like trapped in these, in those jobs, which granted, you know, um, I worked with some great people and made some friends doing that. And it, it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So again, was, you know, struggling with self-worth, um, was struggling with um, my own sense of success and achievement. And I mean, and, you know, being in my early twenties and not being able to like accept myself and like what phase I was in life. And 
feel like I'm kind of going on and on forever. But um, eventually I had the privilege of going to graduate school. I had a lot of support from my family. I came to Boulder, Colorado, went to Naropa University, which is um, a Buddhist inspired uh, private university that kind of backs up to CU. It's kind of like, you know, it's like this big and then CU is like this big. So it's like, you don't even notice it's there, um, but it's great. And I loved it. I, I, I would do it again if I could. And, I got my master's in environmental leadership and I learned a lot about myself and um, I was able to tailor my program to um, learning about wildlife and uh, development's effect on wildlife. And I worked with local nonprofits and met biologists and um, kind of started getting my toe in the door. And the, the reason I did that was because, you know, when I was doing renewable energy work, one of my motivators was, you know, I'm going to stop mountaintop removal, which is, you know, really prevalent in Appalachia and Kentucky and, and Virginia. And, you know, they wipe off these mountains off the face of the earth. And uh, my motiva motivator was protecting habitat just because like, that's where my heart was. And that's, that's what, what I loved. And I thought, why not, why not go to the source? So I started learning about wildlife and um, graduated and got the job I have now, which is with the Endangered Species Coalition. I'm like our, our person in the Southwest and I just get to do a lot of cool stuff. I'm a pause. I've been talking for a long time. My <laughs> mouth is dry. I'm pushed. <laughs> get some wine. No, that's really good. I kind of want to reverse back a little bit because it sounds like you had some big personal transformations that happened while you were in grad school. And I think a lot of us have had some similar moments where we just like come into our own. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? Mm. Kind of what did you experience? What what made Haley that I see now before me? What did you experience during grad school that really took you down your path? Girl, um, that, I mean, I am like still experiencing that. I think I, I'm still coming into myself. I I turned 30 a couple years ago and like that was like a really, I don't know. It was like a really defining moment for me. I Lots of people have told me that, you know, your 30s are the best years of your life. And I, I only say that because, you know, grad school was a defining moment, but I mean, it was just the beginning. It was just, you know, I was just planting the seeds. Um, and I mean, I'll say in grad school um, at Naropa, we were privileged to take, you know, multiple uh, meditation classes. And um, my cohort was really small. We actually only had four people in our entire cohort, like moving from class to class um, both years. And I mean, that was spectacular. The, the, those three women, it was, we're all women and we're all white. And so like we, it was really easy for us to connect and come together. I think we had similar backgrounds and, um, and we're, we're, they're still my best friends. Um, we still, we still talk like almost every day and, um, God, like, wait, five years later, we graduated five years ago. So, I mean, but the pivotal moment, I mean, dude, I don't know. I started paying attention to like how I actually felt and started learning how to like track, like, you know, this isn't okay. This isn't normal. I, you know, I, I'm getting feedback from, you know, the outside world that I'm not okay with this. Like, how can I, 
how can I work with myself to meet my own needs in this situation? I feel like I'm being a little abstract, but I, th- I think what I'm trying to get at is, I mean, dominant culture is really harsh, right? Like, you know, we work 40, 60, Jesus, 80 hours a week, if you have the energy. And um, I read something today that was talking about how, you know, when the 40 hour week was created, it was under the assumption that somebody like probably a woman would be at home doing everything else that would need to be done in the home. And like now, like everybody's working a 40 hour week and it's just, it's a lot. And I mean, some weeks I do not have the energy and I, to do that. And let alone there's people out there that work multiple jobs and um, that aren't as, aren't as privileged as I am. And so, you know, just recognizing the hustle that it takes to, to live in a world like we live in. And I think in grad school, I I was kind of given the permission, I think, to manifest what I, like, what do I want my life to look like? Like, what am I best suited for? Um, I don't like sales, you know, I'm not suited for that. And I think, I don't know, I think I just kind of started the process of coming to terms with who I am and accepting myself. And that's still like a daily practice. Um, I still oh, don't awesome. always accept myself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's a struggle that we all deal with, especially in our field when we're always battling against something it feels like at all mm-hmm. times. But, but to bring that back around, um, since you mentioned the Endangered Species Coalition, so did you is that where you came from after gradu- um, after you graduated? Is Did you immediately go into that role or kind of just share the story of how you got into the role you're currently in? Yeah, I, girl, I, did, I found a listing on Idealist and applied for it and got it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't feel like it's a really long story. Although, I mean, I didn't get that job immediate, this job immediately. It took, it took me a few months after graduation. And I will tell you, those were like some of the scariest three months of my life. And we weren't like even in a pandemic. So my love and my empathy and concern goes out for those that are like looking for jobs right now. Actually, one of my, my housemates, she graduated undergrad, um, this summer. And, you know, she had, she got a temporary job, but she's like working for looking for work right now. And it's just, you know, I love you girl. Cause shit's hard. And like, woof, you got this though. She's got it. She's, <laughs> she's going to crush it, whatever she's going in for sure. Yes. Awesome. So what exactly do you do? So you hey. have a very unique role in conservation. I've met a lot of people in this field and you're the only one that I know that does what you do. So you, yeah, you are. So if you want to kind of explain what you do. Yeah. So I work in the people side. I I say the people side of conservation, you know, one thing that I think that I really like is a lot of wildlife managers say, you know, we don't, you don't manage people or damn it. I've only had half a glass of wine. You don't manage, you don't manage wildlife, (laughs) you manage people. Um, And so I like to say I work on the people side of conservation in terms of advocacy and policy. Um, So what big piece of my job is making sure the Endangered Species Act remains strong, which actually it hasn't. The Trump administration has kind of fucked us um, in, in a lot of different ways, but wildlife and conservation and public lands is just one of them. 
Um, so I do some lobbying. I do a lot of community engagement and activation. I'm like, you know, call your senators, sign this petition. Let's do this event. I do a lot of education. Um, I'm also getting to, into more like art as advocacy. Um, actually, some really bad news. Get your wine ready. Um, Got it. There, there was actually in 2018, the Thanksgiving count of monarch butterflies in the West was about 30,000, which is still down significantly from the numbers in the 1980s, which was like 4.5 million. So we're at like, like more than a 99% increase. Well, the Thanksgiving count this year, just two years later, um, they've counted about 2000. So we've seen like another dramatic, like 2000 individuals. So we're seeing like another dramatic decline in monarchs in the West. And so I, my job is to say, like, decision makers, we have to do something about this and to, like, mobilize our communities to, like, make it happen. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll drink on that one. Mm -hmm. mm. I'm going to get a refill. Um, <laughs> so on a day-to-day -day basis, what exactly is it that you do, especially from, like, more like the governmental side, because mm. like me, I don't know anything about this. You have taught me pretty much everything I know when it comes to how a species gets protection, how a piece of land gets protection. What exactly is that process? I just know the biology side of like mm -hmm. why they're important, but you know how something gains protection. So if you wouldn't mind talking about that. Yeah, girl. And that's why we make such a good team. Cause like, I. I want to know the biology. I want to be a scientist. I'll just vicariously be one through you. Um, so actually a really cool thing about the Endangered Species Act um, that not a lot of laws have is that it, um, it empowers citizens to like be a part of conservation. So when a species gets listed, typically somebody is petitioning that species. So like an organization, I mean, an individual, if you have enough time and money to like do the research and gather the data, like you can do it. Um, but typically somebody petitions a species. Um, actually, the monarch that we just mentioned is a really great example. Um, in 2014, they were petitioned to be listed. Um, and, you know, a lot of time went by and that decision was never made, um, despite a lot of evidence that was presented to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, which is the governing body over all of our endangered species, which is housed under the Department of the Interior, if we want to kind of draw those connections. Um, they presented all this data of why they should be listed. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, you know, six years later has yet to make a decision. And actually, because of a court case, they are mandated to make a decision this month, December 2020. They're supposed to say, like, yes, they're listed or no, they're not. Um, granted, the Trump administration, you know, like, we don't we think it's going to be really bad news. And like, at least that's what we're projecting just because of all the other terrible stuff he's already done and that the administration has already done. Um, but, you know, considering this new dramatic decline in, in monarchs in the West, hopefully they will get listed because they really need protections. But that's kind of an example of how, how a species is listed. Someone petitions it, they give a bunch of information to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, looks through the information and eventually they'll say, yes, this species warrants listing. We're going to list them as either threatened or endangered, or they'll say, no, they don't warrant listing. And 
unfortunately, when they say no, more often than not, it's, it's a politicized decision. Um, it's one that's not based in science, but rather based in, you know, is the listing of the species going to affect some sort of industry like logging, like oil and gas extraction, like bleh, name, big agriculture, like, you know, any, any one of our uh, big industries that are destroying our environment. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So what an organization is asking the Fish and Wildlife Service to do is to put a species underneath the Endangered Species Act. Is that mm -hmm. pretty much what, am I translating correctly? Yeah, I think so. And when, um, when you list a species, if you list them as endangered, that the de definition of that is, is um, at risk of becoming extinct. If, you, if a species is listed as threatened, that means at risk of becoming endangered. If you kind of see those two, those two distinctions. And when a species is, is listed, they get access to funding, to research, to um, protection, like I said, from industries, from being incidentally killed. Also, the Endangered Species Act provides mechanisms for private landowners to tap into so that, you know, they can kind of, like, say, if an endangered species is found on their property, they can kind of, like, navigate that without having too many of their um, private property rights infringed upon. And so, actually, the Endangered Species Act has been called one of the most uh, excuse me, strongest environmental laws like in the entire world. So like that's super dope. However, there's politicians um, like many of those in the Trump administration, like many in our Congress right now that want to weaken the act because they want to make it easier to extract resources. They want to um, they want to have access to our public lands to extract resources. And all of these things make profit for very few people and actually harm the vast majority of Americans, whether that's through pollution, um, through the removal of public land access, which gives us, you know, recreation, physical and mental health, etc. Um, and takes away the land's capacity to support biodiversity. And, you know, you as, as a scientist, this is where your expertise comes in of like the importance of biodiversity, which, you know, leads to resiliency of communities, resiliency of human communities. It cleans our air, filters our water, provides waste removal, reduces diseases like that, like, you know, ugh, the list of ecoservices that we need and that we rely upon, you know, just continue, and especially it's like climate change. Like, all, and like, we could just be talking about climate change mitigation. Like, we need these large intact landscapes um, for climate change mitigation or else we effed. <laughs> yeah. Yes, for real. Mm -hmm. So how can, ho hopefully you can shed some light on this. How can a law that powerful be possibly to the detriment of itself? So what exactly is happening in government for something that powerful to be weakened? What exactly is going on? Such a good question, Brooke. So over the last few years, the Trump administration has um, created these regulatory changes, pretty much like reinterpreting the Endangered Species Act. Um, and so the first set of regulatory changes did a few different things. One was they allowed economic analysis to be taken into account when making listing decisions. Now, that was not the case 
beforehand. Uh, beforehand, it says, you know, you can only consider the best available science and, you know, no economic considerations. Now they're like, oh, you know, now they can say like, oh, this species is going to, if we list a species, it's going to cost so-and-so, possibly somebody that lobbies for me, that gives me $100,000 in a super pact, you know, that helps me get reelected. I'm playing the part of a skeezy politician. Um, you know, if I list this, if we list this species, that that industry is going to be affected, so we can't list it. You know, so that's super super skeezy and sneaky. Um, another thing is that it com they completely ignored climate change. So you can no longer, since these regulatory changes, you can no longer list a species or designate critical habitat for a species based solely on climate change. And species species like that are under those examples might be like coral reefs which are dying because of ocean acidification due to climate change or like polar bears, which are already listed. So don't worry about them. But just as an example, polar bears, um, because they're mostly endangered and are starving because of melting sea ice and having less access to food. Um, so that's, those are those examples of species that are the listed due to, due to mostly because of climate change. Um, and then they also weakened some of the consultation processes with U.S. Fish and Wildlife that, again, makes it easier for industries to, like, get permits to do bad things. Um, so that was some of the regulatory changes that happened. And then uh, some other, like, really challenging things to understand. And, you know, like, um, I luckily rely on our policy advisor, who is, like, amazing at the Endangered Species Coalition to kind of translate this for me. But another group of regulatory changes they did is, like, they literally redefined the word habitat to, to only include like where the species currently exists. Meaning that if a species has habitat that can support them, but they're not currently like occupying it, then like it doesn't count as habitat. Like some like, just like some bullshit like that, that just like, so like, any of the regions that they've been extirpated from against their will, normally from human induced reasons, those are no longer like you can't designate critical habitat based on that yeah like it's yeah so, so some like like wiggity wiggity bullshit you know i mean just some some shitty stuff and i mean you know the trump administration is they've been blatantly terrible this whole time and this is just another example of like the absurdity that is them but you know let's cheers to the upcoming administration we're watching you. You better be good because we ain't going to let up. So where does the American people come in this? Mm. So how did, how did that come to be? Did the American people have any voice of this happening or, or was it very confusing or, cause the way you just put it out there was very black and white. Mm -hmm. And I don't care what side of who anybody's on. I'm very neutral intentionally. I, the way you just presented that argument, most people would be like, duh, what, what are you talking about? So clearly there was something lost in translation. Mm. So what happened to allow that to happen? Because like I said, it doesn't sound like maybe the American people didn't know or something was twisted. So what happened there? I mean, here's the thing in my, you know, I'm a young person. I have limited experience. I have like, I don't know, not quite a decade of nonprofit experience. So like I have a little bit under my belt, but there's folks out there that have been doing this for 40 years, you know? So like, 
I, so what my, my point is like, this is my, this is my, from my experience, but like, well, I mean, the administration that's in power can kind of, when it comes to departmental decisions, like they can kind of do what they want. I don't mean that to sound disempowering. Um, I mean, where do I want to start? So it's actually, when I started nonprofit organizing, I did not know, and, and maybe a lot of y'all don't know, I did not know that you, I could walk into my senator's office anytime I want and like request to meet with them and go talk to them. And like you, like you have come to, to senators meetings with me and like been amazing. Um, and Thank you for those, that. <laughs> yeah, we've done those together. But I mean, I think the vast majority of Americans don't know that you can do that. And in fact, it's actually your right and obligation as a citizen to say like, hey, congressperson, hey, senator, this is how I want you to represent me in Congress. I, and so that's really empowering and really important for all Americans to take part in, um, all, all people, community members to take part in. Now, when it comes to administrative decisions, that's, um, I mean, I won't say different, but maybe a little more challenging. So with these regulatory changes, um, your initial question, which was like, how did this happen? There must've been something lost in transition. Nah nothing was lost in transition. So when you, when they make these regulatory changes, they have to have public comment periods. And normally those public comment periods are 30 days to 90 days, depending on how generous um, that department wants to be. But um, when they propose the initial regulation changes, you know, we had so many days of, of public comment period, our community, so organizations like mine, we got over 800 thousand comments from individuals. So almost a million comments in opposition to these regulatory changes, um, which that's a shit ton, just to put it in perspective for you. Um, and when they came out with the final regulations, they were in fact a little worse than they had originally proposed. And so I mean, I don't think anything was lost in translation. I think that my perspective, I think that they had a public comment period because they had to and that they didn't have an intention of listening to the American people. And I think that that points at the importance of our elected officials and how in the United States we have a culture of not voting I mean, oftentimes, you know, for presidential elections, I don't know, like 50 to 60% of people vote, but when it comes to like more local elections, I mean, you know, that, that percentage plummets dramatically and, and um, people voting, voting and meeting with your elected officials is like the number one best thing that you can do for the environment. And actually, you know, one good thing in the Trump administration is I think he's really incited that he's incited that participation of being like, oh, shit. Like, I didn't know it could get this bad. Nah, it definitely can. And it can get worse. Um, and, you know, because of grassroots mobilizing, because of um, the engagement of people of color and um, communities that are more often than not, not represented, like voting in this last election, that's why we defeated Trump. And so, I mean, people need to keep doing that in every single election, because until we have people in power that are willing to listen to their constituencies and protect the interests of future generations, like we're screwed, but I, I, we're at a bifurcation point where things could get better. And I think keeping the pressure on Biden is going to be 
so important. He could easily kind of slip back into this complacent Democratic role that we've seen the Democrats kind of be in. Like, I'm, I consider myself a Democrat. And like, come on, y'all, like, we got to step it up a little bit. I, I you know, I think it's important to work across the aisle and people are dying because of COVID. People are dying because of climate change. People in Flint don't have clean, still don't have clean water. I mean, I'm kind of tired of the compromise when people are dying and like Democrats, like let's step it up. And that starts with people voting and meeting with their representatives. Girl, get yourself a drink of wine. I'm going to ask you my next question. So I think one of the big disconnects, just me personally, um, and also just knowing, so I know that before we, we logged on, we chatted about how hard it is sometimes with how much people are working now. And we are all wrapped up in our own little bubble <laughs> because our lives are busy as fuck right now. I mean, even during COVID, there's so much going on. It's almost like the world is going to freaking end. There's like a social media, just like almost being thrown down our throats to the point where people are disconnecting or people are like overconnecting, and no one knows what's real or what's true. So what are some of the best resources that you know of for people to get just honest information so Ooh. that they know what's going on? So I, I, I guarantee you so many people did not know about what the Endangered Species Act was, what happened to it, or to even mm. know that there was a comment period to put something out there. Like that might just be so far from most people's reality, because unless you're in our field, I mean, who else knew about it? So mm -hmm. where are some of the reputable places that people can go to just keep up on these things or know what's going on and how they can make their voice be heard? That's a tough one, honestly. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is find like a community or an organization that you trust. And I mean, you know, subscribe to their emails. Um, I want to say, you know, wildlife and endangered species and non-human beings, like, I, I feel like it's actually a little indicative of my privilege, but I, like, that's where my heart is. And that's where, what I have chosen to pursue as like my life's mission and my career. Um, there are many, many equally as worthy and important causes out there, whether we're talking about um, immigration, um, uh, prison reform, I mean, why can I, environmental justice. I mean, there, there are so many really important causes out there. And so I, I, like where my mind goes is like, find, find an organization you trust and, and form a relationship with them follow their emails, um, get to know them. And, and granted, we can all have, you know, you can be passionate about more than one issue. But I mean, like you just said, we're busy, dude. I mean, I've chosen advocacy to be my career because I, I mean, I'm one of those people that I don't have energy at the end of the day to like also do other stuff a lot of the time, like outside of like, I'm, dude, I'm lucky if I exercise this day. Like I got, I got two doggos that like are my babies. Like I am, like I embrace the dog mom mentality. Like 
you know, I have to take care of them. I have friendships I need to maintain. And I, I'm one of those people, others are different that I just, I don't have the energy to like work my 40 hours and exercise and eat right and cook my food and make sure my dog babies are happy and healthy and maintain my friendships and my relationship with my family. And, um, but some people out there like are psyched to volunteer. And those are the people that, you know, like I want to work with. Um, but like I said, there's lots of worthy causes that are important that need bodies to like encompass the movement. Um, so yeah, find an organization you trust. Um, I do think, you know, I think that there's media outlets out there that, um, one can get, you know, get information from, but I'm, you know, I'm not the best person. Like, you know, we all need to be careful about fake news, but I'm, you know, I don't want to sit here and name them for you because honestly, like I, ugh, I'm hesitating to say this, but dude, I like, I'm busy. I'm working on a lot of different things. You know, those little things that they put on horses to like keep them on their track, yeah. you know, so they yep. don't get distracted. Like mm-hmm. sometimes I have to put those on. The blinders. Yep. Yep. I, oh, oh, hi. Look when my doggies just came to oh, me. Is hey, um, <laughs> sometimes I have to put those blinders on and just like, you know, put my head down and do my work. And so I rely on like my coworkers and my relationships to like feed me important information that I need to know that week. Um, because like I said, I have to kind of create boundaries because my energy, you know, I only have so much energy, um, and rest is, is vital. And, you know, hopefully we'll talk about a little more, um, kind of like an over rebellious act in our society. And so, so I guess, yeah, kind of on that, um, with the next administration, or with more people, God, your dog is so cute. What, no, what's no, 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 no. This is Kane. 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 He's a big rescue doggy, and he is just so sweet and patient, and wants snuggles. And you can just kind of like, Ooh. I'm sure he loves the mountains. He looks big and fluffy. Yes. <laughs> Snow is his friend. Yeah. Oh, oh. sweetie pie. Yes, yes, oh, hi, yes. Kane. Oh, that's great. Um, so kind of on that note. Can everything that you just mentioned happen to the endangered species act? Could that be turned over in some way, shape or form? Can it be brought up by the people? Is it the administration? So how can the powers that be put the power back into the endangered species act? Yes. So Senator Udall and Congressman Grijalva, both in the Senate and the house introduced the Protect America's Wildlife and Fish in Need Act. Um, And the acronym is the Paw and Fin Act. Isn't that adorable? There's like somebody's job out there to just like create these really cute acronyms for legislation. Um, So- That's so cute. Yeah, I know, right? So the Paw and Fin Act actually like, it's, it's one of the shortest bills in history. It's like two sentences and it just says like, we revoke the Trump administration regulation changes as they relate to the Endangered Species Act or something like that. Um, so yes, we can pretty much just blah, 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 through Congress, like revoke those. I mean, granted, um, in you know, January 24th, it, the con- Congress will change again. And so that legislation would have to be reintroduced because it's like the next Congress. Um, so that could happen. Also, you know, this is something I'm less familiar with, but Biden, President-elect Biden could do like a you know, like an executive order reverse style thing, I'm pretty sure. That's where I'm less confident um, that I know the answer to that. But yes, there are definitely ways. 
Also, girl, another thing I know you're going to be interested in is, um, you know, the Trump administration delisted walls like federally like a month ago, and that's going to become effective on January 4th. Wolves will no longer have federal protections. So the Biden administration could also rewind that shit because that's some, you know, baby back bullshit too. Um, So yes, all this can be undone. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, that's good. (laughs) And I just love that you brought up wolves because that's actually where I was taking this conversation next. So big things in Colorado are going on right now. Massive things. The things that we spoke to our Congress people about, that we talked about, that you took me to, that was really amazing. It almost feels good because like our work, we actually saw come to light. It got on the ballot and it's approved. Reintroduction of wolves into Colorado is a thing. Now, (laughs) now comes the work. Now comes the questions. Now comes what does this actually mean? So if you wouldn't mind explaining that. So now that if you actually, if you wouldn't mind explaining the whole process, because people are probably going to listen to this that have no idea what we're talking about. So why was wolves put on the ballot? What was decided? And where do we go from now? <laughs> All right. Um, so I mean, do, like this process started like decades ago with um, some really committed folks. Um, So I want to say the success of this year's election um, and the passage of 114, the proposition to reintroduce wolves to Colorado, um, stood on the backs of, you know, a couple decades of work here in Colorado. Um, So definitely want to acknowledge those folks that have just been doing work for so long. I have been in this position and involved in that Colorado wolf work since like 2016. Um, And let's see, the reason it came about was um, essentially because, I mean, Colorado is prime habitat for wolves. And, you know, we have wolves in the northern Rockies of Canada, you know, extending down to Montana and Wyoming. And they were reintroduced into Idaho around around the same time they were um, reintroduced into Yellowstone. And then we also have wolves in, in the Southern Rockies. We have Mexican gray wolves, which very few people actually know about. If you've never heard of a Mexican gray wolf, it's, you know, one of the most endangered subspecies of wolves in the, of gray wolves in the world. I mean, this is, this is something you should know about, um, especially if you love wildlife. Um, so we have those in the Southern Rockies. And so Colorado has kind of represented this like dark, like, you know, black hole of, of wolflessness. Um, Despite the fact that there's prime habitat, um, the last wolf pack in Colorado, um, there hasn't been a wolf pack in Colorado, like an established pack since like 1945, um, where they were were exterminated by white settlers as they were coming in and stealing indigenous land and beginning to mine and, you know, Sand Creek Massacre and a bunch of other terrible stuff. These are all things that one should Google if they don't know about them and they don't know about that Colorado history so important. I mean, at the same time that we're disrespecting like uh, the lives of indigenous people, we're, we're disrespecting the lives of, of the native wildlife and um, habitat that, that are so essential to ugh, everything, the world, <laughs> life, the universe and everything. Um, so wait, where was I going with this? I got a little off track. Wait, okay. So 1945, no wolves. We exterminated them, white settlers. 
did a lot of bad stuff. So fast forward, um, did you, you know, like to the 2010s, um, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife Commission kind of signed this letter and they were like, we will, we will never reintroduce wolves to Colorado. We don't like them. Um, and so that pretty much kind of like gave advocates like my organization kind of an ultimatum a little bit of like, okay, well, if the department, the state department isn't going to reintroduce wolves and clearly the feds, US, uh, the federal U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, they're not going to reintroduce wolves. So like, by golly, it's up to us, the citizens, like the science says wolves are good for ecosystems. The science says that wolves mitigate climate change. They um, move ungulates, uh, protect vegetation, and actually, um, I mean, create like a, a trophic cascade. I'm sure you've seen seen that video from Yellowstone. It's beautiful, you know, and like makes you cry and stuff. It's, it's amazing. Um, so we need, we need wolves in Colorado. Like there's something missing here. Um, so, I mean, we took it to the streets. The, the state legislature wasn't going to do it. The, the um, state agency wasn't going to do it. The fed was, feds weren't going to do it. And so the citizens did it. We had to get like over 200,000 signatures of Colorado citizens, Colorado register, registered voters. We did it, you know, as a community. And the Secretary of State confirmed that all those signatures were valid. We got on the ballot this November, at the beginning of November, it passed. And I'll tell you, it was kind of close. Um, it was approved by 60,000 votes. There were a few reasons for that one, like COVID put, it, COVID put a monkey wrench in like absolutely everything, right? This included. Um, and so we kind of think maybe there was some lower um, turnout for the, pro for the initiative because of COVID. Also some like 11th hour opposition funding. So like Safari Club who, you know, trophy hunts Cecil the lion and giraffes, which, and like all these other amazing animals, like they put a lot of funding against it as did the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, which I don't, I guess they don't understand that wolves make elk healthier. I don't get it. Yeah, that's actually Maybe really surprising. Maybe somebody email me. Yeah, because yeah. I don't. I'd love to. Talk I would to like you more information on that. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. Like, why mm -hmm. not? Like, why? I mean, I don't know. Um, and some other organizations. So either way, whatever the ballot passed, it it passed above the you know the recount standard. Which if it anyway, I'm getting too much in the weeds. But it passed, bitches, and only a. Real quick, sorry, in the side. I love, I'm really embracing the word bitches. <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. Like that word just took a little for like a very long time. Like I'm taking it. I love it. All right. Bitches. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think so it's fun to say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so, Brooke, to answer your question, now what, ha what happens next is that. The proposition that passed requires Colorado Parks and Wildlife to do like stakeholder meetings to, you know, make sure that we're considering the folks on the Western Slope where wolves would be reintroduced, like are being considered in the, in the management and recovery. Um, so they're going to create like they're going to have stakeholder meetings and public comment. They're also going to have like working groups that are going to create the management plans and create like, you know, the, reintrodu uh, the reintroduction plan. We're hoping to have paws on the ground by 2023, if not sooner. Um, 
And I mean, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, that's kind of what's happening in my organization, like me, you know, like literally what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of years is um, advocating to the, to the departments of like, you know, let's not, we can't lethally manage wolves. And in fact, the science says that when you lethally manage wolves, it is counterproductive and can actually create like more depredation of livestock or predation of livestock. Um, we're also, you know, I don't know. I'm going to be doing a ton of stuff. Um, <laughs> no, that's awesome. So how would, um, yes, wolf biology, I, this is about you. I'm not going to go on a tangent on that, but because that, that doesn't actually make total sense. You're disrupting the pack, blah, 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 but we're going to continue on. Um, so how would the reintroduction to Colorado differ than the reintroduction to like Wyoming and Idaho? I know those are really rocky um, and hopefully going to avoid all of those issues that happened in those states, hopefully. Is there a way to avoid kind of some of the lashback that happened mm. in those states? Mm. I mean, I hope so. I think that one place that those states really struggled and maybe um, something that we could do better here in Colorado is actually budgeting for public education. And I, I mean, I, you know, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say, I don't think that they did that enough in the Northern Rocky States. Um, educating about, you know, wolves are not dangerous. Um, in Yellowstone, you know, I'm not gonna like make up a bunch of numbers and facts because I don't have them at the tip of my fingers, but I mean, it's like, ugh, I don't know, tens of thousands of people visit Yellowstone every year and they go hiking and they camp. There has not been one, you know, a wolf has not injured one human, like at all that I know of in Yellowstone. I mean, kind of the same thing with the Great Lakes states. Um, the Great Lakes states are in certain parts are even more densely populated than Colorado. And again, there has not been any um, incidences of like human wolf conflict. Um, so in Colorado, I mean, the Western Slope is pretty sparsely populated. Um, there's a ton of public land. There's almost 17,000 acres of public lands. Um, and granted, there is public grazing of livestock on our public lands in the Western Slope in Colorado. Um, th these public grazing allotments are typically like many generations old and typically those folks pay very little like rent to graze on our public lands. And, and granted, like having wolves will change their life and will change their, um, you know, the way that they do things. But I believe it is the responsibility of our agencies to like educate, provide resources. Um, so, and provide non-lethal coexistence measures um, for them. So things, so when I say non-lethal coexistence measures, I mean like things that scare wolves away from their cows so they won't hunt them. So like um, special flags that you put on the fences and like you kind of have to move the flags around because wolves are smart like come on like they're gonna get used to them so you, there's certain things that you have to do and um also like automatic lights and then actually like having human presence around the cows this is the thing people don't know it's like like y'all they take those cows and they like put them out in the middle of the nowhere and they just like leave them there for like five months with like nobody out there with them so like 
yeah, a bear is going to eat some. Like, yeah, a cougar is going to eat some. Like, would you rather have someone hand you a hamburger or like go run a mile for your food? I mean, this is kind of common sense. So I think my point is there's things that need to be done. We need to educate people. We need to provide resources. Um, and yeah, I see us doing that in Colorado and ideally doing that better than we did in Idaho and Montana and Wyoming. And granted, the last thing I'll say here is those are both, um, all three of those states are very conservatively managed. And I think here in Colorado, you know, we have Governor Polis and his husband, um, First Gentleman Marlon Reyes, and they're like dope as fuck. They are super huge advocates. I've been working with both of them for years and I can't, I only see it being done better here than it was done in those other states. So Governor Polis and First Gentleman Marlon Reyes, I'm looking at you. It's all on your shoulders. No, that's really glad. I'm really glad you brought that up because that, um, that really gives a lot of perspective. Me having studied African big predators for years and seeing the incredible amount of mitigation measures that have been developed and those, I mean, they live with freaking lions, like, come on, like, and lions, I mean, they do eat people, right? Like, they, do you I mean, like, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> I mean, these people, so, I mean, in these, you know, ranges, um, cattle is everything. It is money. It is everything. They are dealing with hyenas. They are dealing with lions, leopards, cheetahs. I mean, so many big things that want to kill their livelihood, literally. And because um, this is actually one of the big things that I brought up. Oh, is this your other puppy? Sorry, this is my other dog. This is Sebastian. Oh, Sebastian came. He's Sebastian. a little. He's like the sweetest things. Yeah. But yeah, but when you took us, um, you know, to meet our congressman and everything, like that was one of my biggest things, having studied the ways that human predator conflict is managed in other countries that have it way worse than anything we could ever imagine with wolves and just those methods and how they're doing it. Um, and yeah, I just really hope that some of the science is just taking into consideration and like what you said with some sort of educational programs or um, if there's, I have not looked at any of the plans or if anything has been built yet, but if there's some sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like compensation for when <laughs> death cattle yes. is taken. Um, so like, mm -hmm. if that's going to be a part of it, one yeah, of the really big things, proposition, just so oh, you know, okay. like, they included that, that they need to figure out how to do that. So, yeah. And I'm really glad that you brought up the, the, he, the people aspect as well, because when I was at like Cheetah Conservation Fund in Namibia, that was one of the things that helped tremendously having somebody with the herd, an actual human mm -hmm. dramatically decreased the odds of any of their, uh, in this particular case, it was goats any of their heads of livestock being taken by having a person there. So that's really interesting. So would you say that that community or, or that way of lifestyle, are they the biggest people against wolves or, or why is there so much opposition against wolves um, in, in your experience? Mm -hmm. 
That's a tough question. And I think, you know, I'm going to be straight up. I think I don't know the answer to the question. I, um, the myth or the illusion is that it is mostly like hunters and ranchers that are anti-wolf. Um, however, there was a, um, a survey done by Colorado State University earlier this year, so very recently, that surveyed, you know, I don't know, a, a couple thousand or a few thousand um, registered voters in Colorado. And it turns out over 80% of ranchers supported, um, supported wolf restoration. Wait a second. Wait, hold on. I will not even pretend to, to make up numbers. I will find the exact figures for you. All right, I got it right here. Um, so according to this study, 82.4 hunters were in favor of wolf restoration in Colorado. 83.3 ranchers were in favor. And 79.8% voter, of voters on the Western Slope where wolves would be reintroduced were in favor. So, I mean, we have this survey done by a very reputable source that shows actually the support for wolf restoration in Colorado is, I mean, overwhelming. Um, so, That's awesome. yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think like the obvious, the obvious and um, stories that are told are, are, you know, like with ranchers, like, well, wolves, we eat our cows, so we don't want them. With hunters, it's like, well, it makes it harder to shoot an elk. So I don't want them. Um, yeah, but I mean, the fact is that um, less than 1%, according to the U uh, US Department of Agriculture, less than 1%, a fraction of 1% of livestock are actually taken by wolves. Um, when it comes to hunting, I mean, Doug Smith, who's the lead biologist of Yellowstone National Park, he says, I, and he says with pride, I, I, I think it's really cool, with pride that their elk in Yellowstone are like the most tested and like the, you know, the most like honorable to, to get if you're a hunter, because not only do they live with pumas and bears and, you know, coyotes, et cetera, they also like live with wolves. And so it's like the most predator rich, which is a good thing predator rich this you know the the um savanna of the of north america area in the country and like their elk are like bad ass dude and it's like what i mean you know our hunters here and like granted as someone that grew up in mississippi eating venison like i i love game you know someone like you know like I just feel like it's good sportsmanship to like share the land with a carnivore just like you or all granted we're herbivores but like you know, share a land and like share that dignity and that like, I mean, that's sexy to me. Yeah. As a heterosexual yeah. single woman, y'all. Yeah. <laughs> Give me a very predator tested elk. Yes. yes. Throw me that steak. Yes. Give me my wine. That's the way to my heart. Also, yes. if you're progressive and you believe in women's rights, um, <laughs> that'll do. Well, I think a lot of the hunters, I mean, which I think is really cool. And a lot of people, I wish actually understood that hunters are some of the biggest conservation advocates there are. And I really wish that a lot of people understood that. Um, can I challenge you for like two seconds though? Absolutely. So there's an, like what you just said, there's this narrative that hunters are like the original conservationists, that they're some of the biggest conservationists. And 
Um, I don't disagree with hunters being conservationists. What I disagree is them being the original conservationists. And what I also disagree with is that, I, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is the reason why they're the original conservationists and the biggest conservationists is because of privilege. Um, when we were creating and adopting conservation mentality in North America. And, and actually, Brooke, I'm really excited to hear what you think about this as like a trained biologist in the, and like being trained in the US. Um, and especially because like, yo, I'm not. So yeah, so bleh, please tell me what you think. But we, when we adopted the North American model of conservation, we pretty much ignored and threw out the window traditional eco ecological knowledge of native peoples. We pretty much said like, no, they weren't, they weren't managing the land. They were just on it. They're savages. They're not doing anything. Actually, the opposite was true. They were actively managing the land and white settlers came in my understanding. And we're like, we need to adopt the North American model of wildlife conservation, which is actually based on principles from Europe. So not even from our continent. And this North American model is based in, you know, hunting and um, trapping as methods of management, which ignores the benefits of carnivores. And there's, I don't know, I don't know how many, there's so many principles in the North American model, but either way, the reason why like hunters are the original conservationists is because like white men gave that group of people the power and the means to fund conservation. Like right now, me as a non-hunter and a non-angler, I don't have a way to like pay into conservation because I don't do that. Because I, I don't hunt or angle. Um, and like the majority of conservation funding comes from like Pittman Robertson and some other weird bills that like, which mean, pretty much means a percentage of like firearm sales go toward conservation. Really, the only reason people say that is because there's no mechanisms for non-hunters, non-anglers to pay into conservation. So I think what I'm trying to say is it's based on a lineage of power and privilege that's not extended to the rest of stakeholders. Like I'm still a stakeholder, but there's no mechanism for me to buy in. And like, I think, yeah, I'm just going to challenge that hunters are conservationists. They're not the original ones. And I mean, nor do I think they're the most important because they ignore the benefits of carnivores and have actually intentionally excluded indigenous voices for many decades when it comes to land and wildlife conservation. What do you think, girl? <laughs> no, that's a really good point. And coming from an area myself where hunting is really, really big, but one of the main reasons why is it's one of the only ways currently and where I'm from, I'm from like the, um, like the Western region of Appalachians. So there's no predators there. So one of the only ways in that region to help the insane overpopulation of a lot of herbivores in that area is hunting. And also being from a, a poorer area, um, that is a really good way to feed a lot of families is like, I come from a hunting family and I absolutely love deer steak, white tail deer steak. It is so good. Yeah, girl. Like it is so good. You mean deer tacos are so my shit, girl. My like, sister's jerky oh my is like <laughs> the shit. So I would agree with you that I wouldn't necessarily call 
hunters, today's hunters as like the original conservationist. I would completely agree that that just doesn't make any sense. Like the original conservationists are the people who know the land, who was, I mean, they were hunting the game very respectfully, moving nomadically across the land, or even if they were stationary, then they knew the wildlife so well, only taking what they needed. And if it was surplus in any way, it, they knew how to, you know, store it or anything like that. So yeah, I, it's, a, that's a really tough one, especially with the idea of not having carnivores in the area, because then that is, then it's the exact same mentality of why they were pushed out in the first place. Like if somebody is a hunter and against predators and they have the exact same mentality that the original white settlers that came over had. Now the question is, is that their fault? I don't know. How were they raised? What education do they have access to? Are they learning all of these things that you and I are currently talking about? Like one of my really good friends, Paul, which I'm going to totally have him on here. He is an elk hunter and he knows all these things very, very well. And because I would really love to have his perspective as well, but he also is educated in these kinds of things. So is his view indicative of the hunter population and what exactly that means? So I would agree with you that hunters aren't necessarily, well, hunters as we define them today, aren't the original conservationists. Mm -hmm. But since thankfully with the way that our hunting laws are set up, that the tags do go to conservation, that you know, if you do want to hunt some sort of animal that you have to get a tag and if you don't take it, then it's technically illegal. So, and that those Coaching. tags do benefit conservation. Um, so, and the, but that just also goes to show how much better our management system was set up for the hunting system. Because, mm -hmm. you know, in lots of countries where trophy hunting or hunting in general is not managed, it really is a really big problem where, you know, in our country, thankfully, if you shoot anything that is out of what is the standard, like what is the accepted animal that you are allowed to harvest, you can get in really big trouble. So it has to be of this height, this age, this weight, mm -hmm. and that's the only way that you can take whatever the animal is that somebody is hunting. Um, so very grateful for that. I don't know if that's imposed conservation. <laughs> I don't know if you would call it that. Um, so that is a really good question or just like a really good idea that you bring up. And me not personally being a hunter, I don't know how much right I can give to it because I can't say that this is what I do. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if I could personally take out an animal. I know, I, right? Just like you said, just like you said, freaking love eating it though. So <laughs> <laughs> I am, I am. I tried being vegan. I, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Just for just, I mean, I know a lot of people can, um, but also too, I guess this almost, I didn't even have the idea of talking about this, but those kind of like dietary decisions almost, I mean, I don't know many people who can make those dietary decisions and be of, you know, certain amount of privilege, if you know what I mean. So like, 
I yeah. Don't know. I mean, yeah. Being a vegan, being completely plant-based and not to say that any of those are wrong at all. Like, I don't, I don't mean to say that at all, or that like, I'm the devil because I eat meat every once in a while. Um, but ah, mm, not girl, I'm with you. Like, like I will, I mean, being all vegan is it, I feel like that is indicative of some kind of privilege. I mean, even being vegetarian is indicative of some kind of privilege. I want to say, you know, I, I don't have the numbers. Some percentage of America, you know, lives, and I think it's a troublingly large percentage, lives in food deserts, meaning they, you know, don't have a grocery, like access to a grocery store. So they actually get their food from gas stations and convenience stores. So like the amount of fresh food that's available to people is, is, is very limited in most cases. So like being a vegan is a privilege. Being a vegetarian is often a privilege, like straight up. I'm a conservationist. I eat meat every day. Um, sometimes for multiple, all right, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fuck with you. Usually for multiple meals a day. And I, um, do my best, like as a conservationist, I do my best to get my meat from like responsible sources. I mean, humane meat is really important to me. And I understand that like a lot of people argue that humane meat actually isn't humane. And this is something that we need to address as a society of like factory farming is like fucked. And that's where like diseases start. Um, you know, the Spanish influenza, like when, you know, the, the pandemic a hundred years ago, like it was started in America, not even like in Spain. Like that's kind of, that's like a misnomer. They just like whitewash the shit out of that. I mean, you know, and like lots of the different flus, like y'all remember swine flu? That shit started because of factory farming. What was that, 2009? And so anyway, a lot of the issues with our society is due to like the way we process our food. And so actually like hunting is a super sustainable way to get your food. Granted, just like you said, like if I like imagine myself having like a deer in my sights, could I, I don't think I could, I don't know if I could do it, but there are certain gender norms that I um, like adhering to and everybody out there is entitled to adhere to, and to reject all and any gender norms that they want. I like being the gatherer and some dude wants to hunt for me, tight. Um, <laughs> I don't really want to do it. So I think that that kind of just, I don't know, I'm going to lean into my, my um, gender lineage in that one, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, completely. Because we've talked a lot about it. And um, like with like David Attenborough's recent documentary, um, which is so freaking good. That's mm. one of the really big, big things he's talking about is just the impact of the way we process and grow our meat and just the insane effect it has on this planet. And to the point where we're talking about, I mean, leave hooking up with some of his buddies and going out on a crazy elk hunt, which those are insanely intense. It takes a long time to do. You earn that. Um, or even just back where I'm from, just, you know, hosting one of my nephews to have an extra tag so that we can have freshly harvested meat that I know was an animal that lived an insanely healthy life. It never was challenged. There's no predators there at all. Like the worst thing it had to deal with was cross a road and some back road, like <laughs> get hit. And half the time the deer hits I mean, you, you don't even hit the deer. Dealt with that. Dealt with that. So that I mean, because so like that's kind of where we sit too. Like, do I mean I stopped buying beef like 
straight up, like I'm never going to buy beef again, even though I love ribeyes. So it's like, you know, those personal sacrifices too. And yeah, just the, and like, does, then what questions does that arise? And is that the actual proper mitigation of this mm. kind of stuff? Like it's, it's just this, it's this never ending circle, this never ending, like internal moral that we have to fight mm. with every single mm. day. Like, are we making the right decisions? Like, uh, <laughs> um, you're making me think of the TV show, The Good Place. If anybody out there has watched it, it's on Netflix, you know, maybe watch it. But there's this hilarious part, sorry, no spoilers, where like this um, being is like, what if, if this tomato is bad and has um, like uh, put workers in a dangerous situation, you know, just buy a different tomato. And it's like, bitch, it ain't that easy. You know, like shit is hard and yeah, yeah, things are really hard and we have to make the best decision that we can with the information that we have. And I don't know, I think I definitely believe in the sentience of like chickens and cows and pigs. Like I do not, I don't know. I think I just want to name that. Like I believe that and that's real. And um, I also want to name like the sacredness that comes with like eating an animal and especially eating an animal that's like lived on the land wildly. Like whenever I go home to Mississippi and granted, I haven't been home in like over a year now because of the pandemic. But whenever I go home, you know, my stepdad, he's got like a ton of venison in the freezer. He grills like a motherfucker. Um, we always That's do like so burgers <laughs> and steaks. And I mean, there's something really sacred and special about eating. Like, not only am I eating this deer, I'm eating like the grass that it ate. Like I'm drinking the water from the, like, I'm like eating Mississippi when I do that. And I think there's something like beautiful. And like, like when I eat that, that becomes like my cells and my tissue. And I mean, there's no way to underestimate like how special that is and like how, how much I can, I can honor the place that I came from and the wildlife that moved there. And so I don't know. I, I think I, I, I just, I don't know. I want to take a second to like honor that, that um, no conservation is not just hunting. Conservation involves like a lot more than that. And you know, I, I respect it and I benefit from it. Um, yeah. Circle of life. I just think it just goes to show how far we've come from the life we evolved from. Like, I don't think mm. we actually, I don't think it's not even that. I know that if we could somehow communicate with a human being from 10,000 years ago, they'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? what do you mean like some you know native peoples in our own land and where we're from like bison was bison was everything or bison was life mm. and so the idea of pretty much this whole conversation we've had for the past however many minutes just wouldn't even be a thing because that's just how we evolved mm. as a species so yes like to reflect and on that. definitely and you know ten thousand years ago there were what like I don't know, maybe a few thousand humans on the planet. And now there's seven and a half billion. And so, yeah, we have to get creative and we have to get innovative. And 
I mean, I believe we have to regulate each other. Like, I, I, if every human, if, an, if every individual, you know, committed to like going vegan, conserving water, conserving electricity, that wouldn't matter because the vast majority of polluters and users are big business and industrial things. So it's so, I mean, at the end of the day, like we're in, we are in a new world, a lot of the same, I don't know, a lot of the same things exist. And like, we have to change the way we do business. We have to change the way we treat people. We have to give each other basic human rights. I mean, and that includes biodiversity, that includes, you know, access to green spaces and nature. Um, and I think like, if, if I can take us full circle, this is where, where it comes back of the importance of advocacy and community engagement, because without those things, yeah, we're going to be overtaken by climate change and communities, frontline communities that did not, or very much less so contributed to climate change will be the ones that feel the negative effects first. So it is, I mean, it's our responsibility as like humans to, I don't know, fix that shit. Like, fuck those people. That's bullshit. You know? I, I like, ugh. you know, one person, the 1%, like, and when I say 1%, like, I'm not talking about the people that make half a million a year. I'm talking about like the people like Jeff Be Bezos that like makes like, I don't know that it's profited so much from this pandemic like he makes like two hundred thousand dollars a second i don't know i just made that up it's something really crazy um but like that shouldn't be a thing when people are starving and people are losing their homes and species are going extinct i mean that not only is there like traditional ecological knowledge and and in human communities that are being lost. I mean, there's species like orcas in our, in Puget Sound, in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, each of their clans, their pods, like they have traditional knowledge that they pass down to their children. And those baby whales, their children, they only have a 50% survival rate because dams inhibit salmon from getting to the ocean, which is their main food source. So it's like, again, like, one, like very few people are profiting one species and all of the rest of human stakeholders are the ones paying the price. I mean, so I don't know. I guess like my, my message here is like, what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even in that point, I mean, with the people who do make a lot of money, like they've strived for that. And so I will never be against anybody who does make a lot of money. Like I, I won't. Um, it's more of, I think now kind of like in your important role in anybody who talks with people um, or, or, you know, organizations that do is how aware are people of these bigger issues and how mm -hmm. much and how they know what they can do to help. And I mean, cause I don't, I don't know that. I mean, I've, I have no idea what it's like to work 90 hours a week and run a multi-billion dollar business. I have no idea what pressures are on a human being of that scale to, to know what it's like day to day. And I, I won't even try to understand and like how powerful it would be if we could get into those type of circles If these conversations that we're having right now, 
could get into more circles of that type of influence, what could potentially happen? Which, I mean, that might just be an untapped resource. But again, I, I don't know. I've never talked to a billionaire. I, I don't know that that's something that I'm completely ignorant in. And mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, I think that that's tough. I, um, again, I'm a, I'm a push back a little bit and I want to hear what you think about this. I, and I'm not saying that you say this, but I mean, there's no such thing as a, as a self-made man. Like that's not real. Oh that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's due to privilege. That's due to the whole community people. <laughs> yeah. Like you need help. And, and I think that to an extent, I, I mean, how do I, what do I want to say? I do think to an extent people with a lot of money, like, I don't know. And when I say a lot of money, I mean like a lot of money. I'm not talking about like a normal person with a lot of money. I'm talking about like a lot of money. I mean, I think that to have a lot of money, you got to like take advantage of a lot of different things. And I also want to say that there's something, I mean, inequitable about being a billionaire that I don't, that I, I want to challenge. And I, I actually came across a statistic. I pulled it up really quick. Um, a colleague of mine sent it to us and it says a white male with a high school diploma only a high school diploma is 40% more likely to become a millionaire than a black man with a master's degree. And so like money funnels toward privilege. And I mean, in addition to that capitalism, which perpetuates this like rich get richer and the poor get poorer and the middle class dissolves. I mean, I work for a nonprofit. I don't make a lot of money. I I am luckily like I I am privileged. I'm from like a fairly well-to-do family. And I mean, I'm okay. But a lot of people don't have the privilege that I do to be able to like not make a lot of money Um, Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, work for a nonprofit. And so I guess I just want to challenge that. I think the concept of like being a billionaire is really inequitable and that, you know, unless you're white and probably a man, you know, your, um, your opportunities are just, you know, drastically decreased. And as long as we live in a world that is unequal like that, like there's no justice for anybody, Mm -hmm. including the natural world. Cause those people, you know, I mean, they get rich from consumption and capitalism perpetuates you know, the sacrificing of one's body and one's time to make money. I mean, I'm not a sex worker, but I do give my body over to my job to pay my bills and feed my doggos. So, yeah, I mean, shit. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, a lot about this topic, which is fantastic. Um, Yeah. So how do, in your experience or currently what you're, you're working on or your communications or, or anything like that, how do we bring in a more diverse group mm. of people into the conversation that we're having right now? So whether it comes to conservation or just having access to, you know, sustainable food or from your experience, how do we bring more people into this? Yeah, girl. Yeah. Yeah. This gives me sight. Um, so 
I mean, one way that we bring more people into this is just like, be careful how we talk. I mean, I guess, yeah, we need to be more inclusive with our language. So conservation, again, doesn't just have to do with hunting, which is majority white men. You know, only 6% of the American population hunts. And granted, there really? are the ones with, yes, girl, 6 I honestly didn't know it was that low. Percent. Yeah, it's really low. And so, and not that, like, again, not that hunters aren't an important stakeholder, but it's a, they're a very small stakeholder. And so be care, being careful with the way that we speak and who we like put on a pedestal. I mean, there is, if, if only 6% of Americans hunt, that's like 94% of the entire country that we need to be including in our decision-making in conservation. Um, and conservation doesn't just have to do with the spaces that are like pristine and untouched. And like granted those wilderness spaces, uh, those wilderness spaces, spaces are invaluable and needed and essential for our health and mitigating climate change and atmospheric fancy things that happen with molecules. Um, but conservation can also happen in cities and, and the creation of green spaces and green roofs and pollinator gardens and growing our own food. Um, and the encouragement of like of biodiversity and we can also participate in um, conservation by being intentional about how we deal with actually like our most successful species i mean think about it our most successful species like outside of humans because we are like the most successful everywhere we win, we win aka we're killing everything uh jk um our most successful species are like raccoons and squirrels and, and coyotes and like these things that like people don't like and, and mice and like these things that people poison. And actually, you know, it's funny, the reason we kill them is because they're like so good at what they do. And in fact, if we could kind of look at it from a little more of a holistic point of view and like experiment with, with what that would look like of doing it on a large scale, um, I, I, I always go back, oh God, I'm the worst. I can't remember his name. There's this black man from, I want to say it was New York City, but I'm the worst. Brooke, maybe I'll get you his name for like the summary of this. Yeah, yeah, but, we'll put um, it in the show notes. Yes. Like uh, he did a presentation at Naropa where I got my master's and he was like, you know, we have this amazing community garden. He was like, you know, we plant tomatoes, we plant corn, we plant all this stuff. And you know what? We have a lot of squirrels. So we plant sunflowers. So the squirrels leave our corn alone. And I mean, there's just these like really simple, beautiful um, solutions to problems that we often try to use violence to, to bleh, whatever I'm trying handle. To say. Yeah. Thank you. So I guess what I'm trying to like, when it comes to us, like incorporating more people, I think we need to look, look beyond wilderness spaces. Um, I think we need to use more inclusive language. I think we just need to ask, we just need to reach out. I mean, I live in Colorado. I'm a white person. White people in Colorado are the most like seen, I think. And like the most, um, I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to say is like moving from the South to Colorado, it was, it was very apparent to me that the, like the makeup of the state felt different and was different and was a lot more white. And, um, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is being, just being more inclusive, like 
for example, I'm doing this really cool project through work and it's about monarch butterflies. And we already, you know, mentioned that really sad statistic about monarchs that there's less than 2000 in the West. And um, I worked with a, a little under a hundred volunteers to fold thousands of origami monarchs. And now I'm working with a Latinx artist to create an installation with all these origami monarchs. So it's gonna be really, really cool. But the point of that is the point, the reason why I would, I outreached to this artist or actually I kind of, he outreached to me was that um, the monarch is really, really important to Mexican indigenous cultures. They actually, monarchs are, they don't represent, they are the spirits of deceased loved ones, of children, of elders. And, and they visit them once a year on Dia de los Muertos. And I mean, it's this beautiful um, connection that they have. And, you know, without the monarchs, if, if our monarchs go extinct here in the West, like it's kind of looking like that they will, like many folks, especially in California, where they migrate to overwinter, they will lose that connection with their ancestors. I mean, so we're not even, we're not just talking about biological conservation. We're talking about the conservation of cultures here. And so, I mean, I think just like, again, going back to your question of how do we, how do we bring this in? I mean, like, let's just look beyond ourselves a little bit and like, see, like, we're all affected like by this, mostly our frontline communities that are affected by loss of biodiversity and, and pollinators and how they grow our food. And God, I mean, I could talk forever. Where's that installation going to be by chance? So, um, actually the world, I will address you. Um, it'll be at the museum of Boulder, uh, shout out to them. Thanks so much. Um, in April and May, but, um, that, installation who which is being done by Cal Duran um, I think you can visit as well website cal, uh, artbycal.com just send that to me I'll make sure I put it in the notes too figure sure. it out yeah um, <laughs> it, it should be done in January so we're, we're actually looking for a spot for it to be showcased in February and March and then like after May um and granted like COVID is weird and like people you know we're we it's not like we're trying to encourage people to go out in public and, and get sick but um we're still pushing you know we're still trying to find a way to navigate all of that but um yeah using a boulder in April and May still open to um February and March locations as well as after that's awesome oh my gosh yeah, I can't wait to see sick. that so that's amazing. gonna be so cool I know that's oh gonna God. be cool that's a really awesome project. Gosh, yeah, the monarchs are so special. So that's, that's awesome. So this one, this next question I have, um, I might go a little close to home, but mm. when do you think you'll have reached success and whatever you define success as? Girl. Wow. Um, when will I reach success? I mean, I always said, well, not always in the last like handful of years, I've said, I want to make $80,000 a year. And the reason for that is there's, um, like this bell curve. I don't know, somebody, some researchers created it and it was like, um, a bell curve of like, the more money you have, the happy you happier you are up to $80,000. And then after that, like the less happy you are. And so I was like, okay, success means I'm making $80,000 a year. Y'all, I make way less than that. So, and I, and like, yeah, I'm still pretty happy. Um, I mean, and when I say pretty happy, 
Yeah. I'm generally happy. I struggle. I struggle with, um, some, I, I struggle with anxiety and depression. Like a lot of, like a lot of Americans do it actually. Um, this is really important to me to destigmatize. Like I take medication and it's been a long road of finding out what medication works for me and which one makes me feel good. I'm kind of like feeling good on one right now. And I'm like, all right, this is holding steady. Like that's positive. Great. Um, but that's definitely put a kink in my, you know, like my happiness plan and my plan to, you know, address like what is success to me. And, and I mean, especially considering the work that I do is so like success is subjective because change happens so incredibly slowly. I mean, the Endangered Species Act and a lot of other really important environmental laws were passed in the early 1970s. And I mean, 1990. I mean, it's been, you know, almost 50 years since all of that happened. And I mean, and granted, you know, the civil rights movement was, you know, 50s, 60s, and like, we're still struggling, you know, so like success, I, I, I think I have to really modify my de- definition of success, not by what is the paradigm, like, is the paradigm changing? Because I, as an individual can only do so much, but it's more like, I think my definition of success is, do I feel good at the end of the day? And as a perfectionist, which is self-defeating, as a perfectionist, that shifts daily. And some days, like, I'm on top of it. And I'm like, yeah, girl, you did everything you could. It's cool. And then other days, I'm like, you're an idiot. I can't believe you didn't finish this. You're lazy. There's something wrong with you. I cannot believe you even have this job right now. Like, that's like, you know, I know I'm not the only one that has those bullshit thoughts. So, I mean, what does success look like to me? I don't know. My vet gave my doggos like a A++ in health. Last month when we went to the vet, that means I'm being a really good dog mom. Um, you know, actually, ever since the pandemic, my like, I can't fit in any of my jeans. And um, I'm becoming okay with that sort of, that's probably a measure of success. Um, I'm I'm making it to work every morning. That's a measure of success. I mean, I think like, I don't know, my measure of success is going to change daily. And girl, yeah, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for also feeling open enough to talk about, you know, your depression and Hmm. being on medication. Um, Some of the most important people in my life Mm. suffer from similar diagnoses and any light that we can bring to that is incredibly important just to show that it's not a stigma. It's okay. There's so many people that are dealing with similar things and you coming off as such a happy bubbly person. I think it shows a lot that you're like, even I have my demons and I'm here with you. I'm, I'm, I go through this myself this is what I'm doing. It's okay. And I think that more of those conversations need to happen. I think a lot of those conversations need to happen because it's, it's real. It's real. (laughs) It's very real. And we all fight it. I think it's almost just almost part of our cultural norm of being raised. Just, I think it's like I mean, I don't know when it started, like what generation it started, but it definitely is like, if you 
you need to do this. The only way you're going to succeed is if you get the degrees and you have to get this grade and then you have to have this paycheck when you get out of school. And if you're not doing that, then you're a failure. And like, yeah. Oh, and by the way, you're a woman. Why aren't you married? And you don't have kids. So like, let's add like another layer of like, you know, obligation to that. No big deal. Yeah. Kids. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're just not, that's a conversation we need to have over a bottle of wine after the podcast. after the other bottle of wine yeah. yeah and maybe you know I know you know we've been talking for a really long time and I appreciate you so much Brooke for like giving me this space to just like vent and get on my pedestal and um you know I, I think I actually like was ex- like I wanted to touch on mental health uh, quite a bit in this and um I honestly think like maybe like I wanted to talk about it more but there were so many like I said there's so many important things for us to talk about but Uh, Maybe for those, maybe something I just want to say is that, you know, I don't always feel like my, I don't always feel like my bosses understand what I'm going through. I don't always feel like my colleagues or my friends, you know, understand what I'm going through with my um, mental health challenges. And like, yeah, girl, I work like so hard to make sure that nobody knows that you know, I struggle with those things. And that's like due to conditioning. And yeah, I mean, all, all, the other, all the other stuff that we all just like get put on us. But um, I think, you know, this is so silly. Brene Brown says like, um, shine a light on your shame. And I think like, that's my shame. And I want to name that you know, I don't feel understood and it's, and it's really challenging. And I actually, in a lot of ways, don't feel like I was meant for this world with the way that, um, I am made up and the struggles that come with that. And, and granted, and again, like being a white woman, I have a lot of privileges that a lot of people don't. And so people out there that have a different skin color than me and my same mental health challenges, like, you know, like, fuck, I, I see you. And I don't understand how much harder it is for you. And I acknowledge that it is, you know what I mean? And so I think I just want to say, I think I just want to say that it's okay, that it's hard. And, you know, it's still hard for me. And I think all I can do is get up every day and hang out with my dogs and keep crushing it like you are because you're such an amazing person I mean trying you know it's all you are it only looks like it only looks easy okay hashtag struggle shuffle um but yeah I think I just feel all those people out there I think is what I'm trying to trying to say not to get too mushy no thank you for sharing that thank you so much I'm so glad that the conversation naturally came to the place where you could say that because that is very important. That's very Thanks. important. Thank yeah. you, Brooke. <laughs> Thank you for creating the space. You're that wonderful. That, that's allowed to happen. Good. Good. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so just kind of comes closer to the end here. What is, and you can say anything you want, what is, as, as if you haven't already, mm. but what is one of the biggest asks or one of the final asks that you have of anybody listening to this right now? Mm. Oh yeah. Find your thing. 
find the thing that you care about. Find the thing that you care about. Find the thing you're passionate about. Like I said, mine is wildlife and animals. You know, maybe yours is immigration and getting kids out of cages. Maybe yours is Black Lives Matter. Maybe yours is um, LBGTQIA plus rights and equity. I mean, whatever it is, find that thing that you care about, that you're passionate about, that gets you psyched and like work for that thing. To live up to what you're put on this earth for. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. it takes us a while to figure out what that is, but that's okay. That's part of the journey. That's part of the journey yeah. of being on this planet. And also awesome. go out and, it- and take a fucking walk. Yeah. <laughs> just like, chill the fuck out. Take a nap. Naps are so important. The nap ministry, I just want to do a quick shout out for them. It's like Instagram, the nap ministry, just search it. Like that's like, it's combating capitalism through rest, which it's, it's, it's way much, it's way more than that. But like, that's something that I care a lot about. That's awesome. Yeah. And just finding ways to disconnect. Like I've been personally on a journey of finding ways to just disconnect more and um, meditation and like all those kinds of things of yeah. just the men- the mental health of, th- I mean, just taking care of yourself and figuring out who you are and, and what's going on in your brain and all those kinds of things. So yeah. And just taking a walk. Like one of the things I've recently started doing is leaving my phone at my place. So I can't listen to podcasts, which I listen to all the time. I can't mm-hmm. listen to podcasts. I can't listen to music and I just go out and be by myself. <laughs> And it's pretty amazing what things will come up or what solutions that to Mm. a problem that I couldn't figure out what to do. I just apparently just needed some headspace. And so just going on a walk, just disconnecting. Oh, and also um, shutting off my phone notifications from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. So, Mm. yeah, so that's also been a really big, like, help too. Anybody wants to try that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm bad about that. I roll over and look at my phone and I'm like, no, but I want to like, like we're, we're just the worst. Um, no, that's, that's helped me a lot because I get up way before 8am. So there's there's a lot, I know I'm psycho. I have no reason. I I don't have to get up at that time, but I do anyways. So that's just my, you're, are you nocturnal or diurnal? Oh, I am so early morning diurnal, like, yeah, girl, biology turn. <laughs> I mean, I am so, I'm the early person. I'm the early bird. I'm the, it's dark right now. I need to be in bed. Like I'm so classic, like 6 a.m., 9 p.m., done. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ugh. That's, just, that's just me though. Everyone can be on their own time schedule, but that's me. Um. So yeah, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, I mean, or you on social media or, or you don't have to put out your email, but if you want to, what's the best way if anybody wants yeah. to get with you? No, I'm happy to put out my contact information. Um, I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I don't really believe in Twitter and Facebook. Have y'all heard of, oh God, all the stuff that's going on. It's so scary. Um, but Twitter is H Hawkins at ES or wait, at H Hawkins ESC, so Endangered Species Coalition ESC, and then my email is hhawkins at endangered.org. Um, I am always looking for people to help. I'm always looking for pe- for volunteers. I'm always looking for people to lend your voice, your hands, your you know typing, your communication, in whatever form that looks like for you. 
um, to put towards wildlife advocacy. Um, and, and more than that, I can also, also connect you with like some other really amazing organizations. If, if what you're passionate about isn't quite what I work on, I'm happy to, you know, like pay it, pay that forward and, and move you to somebody like to some place where you can make a really big impact. But, um, yeah, that's, how you that's awesome. And what's the, what's your organization's website too? Endangered.org. Okay. Okay. We have a really great URL. No, that's easy. I was like, is it in right? coalition.org? <laughs> uh-huh. No, endangered.org. I just, Mitch, our, our digital director is dope. Yeah. Stealing that freaking URL. That was good on his part. That domain <laughs> name, he's like, snatch. That's <laughs> so good. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank Love you, Ellie. Yeah. Awesome. This was great. And I can't wait till next time. Thank you, Brooke. Come skiing. You're the best. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.